is truly a privilege of great magnitude this morning to be able to assemble together with each of you. I appreciate the help in the, from the brethren, their work in the services. Uh, we're trying to get our young men up and trained up to take the mantle after we're gone. And I appreciate those of you who have been here for so very many years, kept the doors open and all of your sacrifice and your labor. Our lesson this morning will be centered around the record in, in Romans chapter 4 of Abraham and David. As we begin our remarks this morning, I'd like to point out to you and cause us to remember that the purpose of preaching is demonstrated in the Word of God throughout the Old and the New Testament. We see uh, great heroes of faith such as Joshua and Nehemiah and Ezekiel standing before the assembly and preaching the word in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see Jesus standing in the synagogue, reading scripture, and then sitting and preaching as was their custom. And we see Paul and Peter and Stephen and read some of their sermons, great sermons or synopsis of them in the book of Acts. The purpose of preaching, as we understand from the scriptures, is to convict and convert sinners as well as to inform and to comfort saints. And today as we grieve over the loss of our brethren and as we worry about our brothers and sisters who are sick still and who are injured, we can rejoice in the comfort that is given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for the grace that has been extended to us through his word, through his son, our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, the last few verses of chapter 3 that our brother uh, was not instructed to read this morning because it serves as part of our introduction begins in chapter 3, verse 27. Paul's logic is, where is boasting? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but the, by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. There are five ways in which the justification by faith rather than by law, which the Jews argued for, uh, establishes the law. Number one, when the sinner admits his failure to keep the law as it was prescribed in the law of Moses, that law makes him a sinner. As we expressed last week, law can only condemn. Law can only make us guilty. It cannot justify. When the sinner recognizes this and admits his failure, he recognizes the law as binding and as valid as accurate and true. When the sinner admits that because of his failure to keep the law, he is then dependent on God to provide a way of escape from God's judgment. Remember, it's God's law. And when we break that law, God has promised to come visit us in judgment. But because of our helplessness before him 
and our helplessness to keep the law, we are dependent upon God to provide a way so that we can be made righteous in God's eyes. When the sinner admits that he must submit to the control of God's will for this escape of, from judgment, our submission to him and our submission to Christ is the way that we escape judgment. This is particularly seen in the chapter that we'll begin studying today in chapter 4. The faith that yields forgiveness is progressive. I want you to keep that principle in mind. The faith that yields forgiveness is progressive. We are born into the faith and when we obey the gospel like we are born into our life as babies. We're not born learning, knowing how to walk or knowing how to work or knowing how to drive. We learn those things and we grow. Faith is a growth process also. That's not a one and done deal, contrary to the popular teaching in the denominations today. Faith has steps. It implies, this implies continuous walking, continuous growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, which requires not just mental assent, but discipline, self-discipline on our part. When the sinner believes and obeys the gospel, this is number four, in order to be saved, that sinner then establishes the law. The law is established by our belief in Christ and our obedience to his doctrine. The law is established by the fact that it required the death of Jesus Christ, the only human being to ever live perfectly and to perfectly keep the law was the Son of God. He kept it perfectly, but he was murdered, just murdered, uh, crucified, tortured for our sins. And because of his death, because of his burial, because of his resurrection, we have the hope of being redeemed and made righteous in God's eyes. In summary this morning, we see that the law is established because it forces every man to admit his guilt of sin. This admission recognizes the rule of law and its authority. Law then effectively condemns all men because all men have sinned. Remember that grand uh, principle that Pete, Paul taught in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The justification that God offers to all men is on the basis of their faith. And this establishes the law because it compels all to recognize their inability to claim salvation based on their own meritorious works. In, in spite of the f this fact, there is still a surprising resistance to the message that Paul presents to us in Romans chapter 4, that is of justification by faith. In Romans chapter 4, we see at least four principles taught to us. That Abraham was the father of faith. We see the forgiveness of faith expressed. We have the family of faith described. And we have the factors of faith lined out for us for our admonition. Let's break this down into segments as we begin our study this morning. What then shall we say? That Abraham our father has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But, this is key, anytime we see that little three-letter three word that seems so insignificant to us today, anytime we see that word but, that means that what comes after is pretty important. Abraham could boast, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. 
as we'll see, this comes from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. We are saved by grace through faith. Abraham, the apostle brother, had just said in chapter 3 that man is justified by faith without the law. We read that in the introduction. This is something we hold true for all ages since the gospel plan has been established. No. For all ages before the law, even in the patriarchal system, even under the law of Moses, and even under the gospel of Christ, the dispensation in which we live today. It is true in all cases of Jew and Gentile. Let's put the proposition to the test as we consider what the Apostle Paul says in the succeeding verses. Let's consider the case of Abraham from Genesis 15. Keep in mind, the question is not whether or not Abraham was justified, but the question is how was he justified? By works or by faith? The Apostle Paul is going to demonstrate very clearly to us that it was not by works, but by faith. After these things, Genesis 15, beginning in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless? And the heir of my house is, is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house, one not born in my house, is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven, and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord. Verse 6 is, very, is the key verse. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. This is the point at which Abraham was justified. Abraham, had been, having received such an endorsement from God, could, in the mind of the Jew, be well satisfied with his success and boast or brag about his accomplishments of faith and, uh, and obedience. He could brag and wear on his chest, if you will, or as a hat on his head about God's unstinted praise toward him. However, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that while Abraham might be able to boast, he cannot do it before God. In other words, the Jews' argument sounds great. It sounds reasonable and logical. And it is convincing, except where it really matters. That is before God. The whole context of Paul's argument is based on the grand truth claim that men are not justified by law. Paul is beginning to use Abraham as an illustration. He'll go to David and then come back to Abraham here in chapter 4. Abraham was called the father of the faithful, and this is why. Whether Jew or Gentile, Abraham is the father of the faithful. Now this may well be, the Romans may well be the last letter in the New Testament to draw a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Because the point comes in the gospel plan of salvation where all men are equal before God. And the gospel plan of salvation knocks in the head the Jewish notion that they are better than the Gentile. 
clearly we begin to see that Paul's real emphasis is not on different races or diverse cultures, but on the difference in faith. The question then is, do you believe God or do you rely on law? As we're going to see, this has a very real application for us today. In verse 3, Paul is quoted in Genesis 15, verse 6, which records the dramatic, uh, this, this passage records the dramatic conversation between the Lord and his servant Abram. Speaking to Abram in the quietness of his innermost being, the Lord reminded him that he was his exceedingly great reward. Abraham's response was a startled, how can you say that when I'm, the one, when I'm constantly denied the one treasure that I desire more than any other, an heir, a son who will perpetuate my name? And most remarkable reply, God says back to Abraham, you will have your son, a real son, not an adopted son, not a son as we'll see in later studies in the book of Romans, not a son through another woman, a stepson of sorts, but a real son. Through him, you will become the father of such a great host of people that they will resemble the stars of the sky. <clears throat> Despite all the obvious difficulties that are bound up in such a promise, Abraham was 75 years old when the promise was made, already well beyond childbearing age, Abraham believed God implicitly. With complete abandon, he turned himself and his most cherished ambitions to his God and, that, and what his God was committed to do. And that was counted to him for righteousness. Now the ancient Jew often pointed to Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6 and made the claim that Abraham was perfect, innocent, or sinless. Then they claimed that Abraham could claim his justification by law <clears throat> because he earned that justification. This is what the Jews would, would, would uh, claim. And I haven't personally read it, but people whom I have read have read and studied the ancient works, ancient Jewish works where they made these claims. Paul strongly objects, as we'll see. And Paul did, as we ought always to do, he turned to Scripture. He didn't rely only on his own logic. He used the Word of God to show the fallacy of the Jewish ideology. The idea that Abraham was reckoned as righteous implies that he was not sinlessly perfect. But it was his faithfulness that is the whole tenor of his life his desire or purpose, in spite of the failings, I, I call to mind twice that he lied to try to protect his wife, Sarah, as recorded in Scripture. The whole desire of his life, or the whole purpose of his life, was the condition upon which God declared him righteous. It was an, a life of faithfulness. Paul is able to show quite clearly from the Old Testament that Abraham's acceptance with God came through his faith, not his works, although his works were exemplary. Far from being the cause of his acceptance with God, Abraham's lifestyle was the result of his faith, a faith that demands obedience. 
A faith that demands repentance when one sins. Abraham repented when he sinned. A quick overview of Abraham's life will help us understand how he is the father of the faithful. Genesis 15 and verse 6 is not the first act of trust and of obedience in Abraham's life. Remember he had been called out of the Ur of the Chaldees to go to a land that he had never seen implicitly trusting God to make good on his promise. Abraham was 75 years old at this time. God renewed his covenant with Abraham several times over the next several years. By the time Genesis 15 verse 6 comes around, Abraham and God's covenant had been in existence for a number of years. Abraham was not the patriarchal equivalent of an alien sinner. This is important for us to understand because it relates directly to baptism. Abraham was not the patriarchal equivalent of an alien sinner when Genesis 15 verse 6 came around. No. Abraham's justification was accomplished before the giving of the law. So his justification had to be by something other than the law. Paul here proves Abraham's case that men who are sinners are justified by faith in God rather than their works of merit. Moses and Paul point out here that Abraham believed God and that belief was the, was the basis of his justification. Contrary to popular opinion, popular denominational teaching today, we do not receive Christ's righteousness at our conversion. We do not receive the righteousness of Christ. His moral purity, his righteousness, just like ours, cannot be passed on to someone else. Nor does Christ infuse his righteousness in a convert and make that person meritoriously righteous. But because of Christ's righteousness and our faith in Christ, I want you to get this carefully, our faith in the promised Son, God treats us as righteous as long as our faith is like that of Abraham's, an obedient faith. Justification is not the result of a relationship like that of an employer and an employee. We cannot go out and punch a clock and say, I've done my good deed today. I am justified before God. That's the way it works for us to get our paycheck. Justification cannot be earned. Rather, justification is given because of one's because of our obedient faith. Moving on to verse 5 through 8. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from his words. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. There's some very key and important terms found in this passage of Scripture from Psalms chapter 32. Paul was not satisfied proving his point. 
from the experience of the great patriarch David, but called in another Old Testament heavyweight, if you will, <coughs> none other than King David. David further substantiates Paul's argument that righteousness comes by faith, or justification comes by faith. Quoted from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. He shows that God imputes, impute is the same word as counted, used above, righteousness apart from the law. And this introduced those so enriched into a state of blessedness, that's not mere happiness, where their sins are covered or forgiven or not <coughs> imputed. We're going to talk about what those words mean here in just a minute. A Psalm of David, Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2. A contemplation. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man in whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. As we've already seen, God's imputing righteousness has a positive side in that he counts righteousness to the ungodly. But a negative aspect of the same work is no less exciting because he also declines or refuses to impute sin to those who have broken his law when they come to him in faith. A bookkeeper would look at this as if a generous donor was placing vast credits to the account of a very poor man, a man who is greatly in debt. But the same bookkeeper, while he's given lots of money, lots of wealth to this indebted man, not only gives him wealth, refuses to hold his debt, refuses to debit the withdrawals. Instead, he's placing them against his own account. Human sinfulness is expressed in such a variety of ways that biblical authors in both Hebrew and Greek found it necessary to employ a variety of words to express their understanding of sin. Both David in Psalm 32 and Paul in his quotation of this psalm in Romans 4 are good examples of this. The expressions they used are full of significance. The Hebrew words for lawless deeds is a breaking loose or tearing away from God. For sins, as a deviation from that which is pleasing to God, or harmatea, missing the mark. Iniquity is a perversion, a distortion, a misdeed. Forgiveness, likewise, has as many facets as the sin that it seeks to dispel. It's a lifting up a casting away, a covering so that it becomes invisible to God, the Holy One, as though it has never taken place. And we've seen, perhaps we've experienced even in our own life, man's superficial attitude towards sin and forgiveness can only be countered by an adequate understanding of the immensity and greatness of the human problem. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. Isaiah says, Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Those who find sin relatively unimportant find little difficulty in expecting that human effort 
however well-hearted it may seem, can earn forgiveness. But those who know what sin is also know that only a divine action can deal with sin and deal with it properly. In the same way, those who regard forgiveness as a type of forgetting, coupled with a shrug of divine shoulders, don't worry too much about the necessity for man to take his sin with anything more than a grain of salt. Those who realize that God's forgiveness entails a taking away, a covering over so that it becomes invisible to God, as well as a willingness for God to accept accountability for man's sin while relieving man of the responsibility, also know that this is much more than just a human activity. In fact, nothing less than divine intervention. Only the grace of God can initiate such an act of mercy, and we see that act on the cross of Calvary. Only the open hand of faith, trust in God implicitly, like Abraham, can receive such a blessedness. That's the forgiveness that comes to, through faith. The man is verse, in verse 6 is a man who is ungodly. And the word ungodly means one who does not worship the true God, an idolater. A lot of historians think that Abraham was an idolater before his call toward Canaan. The word does not necessarily imply that on Abraham's part. A broader definition includes simply irreligious or wicked. Whatever is offensive to God, get this, ungodly is whatever is offensive to God, whatever is contrary to his nature, whatever is injurious to his name, or unbecoming of his honor and majesty. Paul's quotation from David is remarkable because it provides a vivid description of sin as well as that of forgiveness. We're going to look at these three words of sin, and then we'll look at the three words of forgiveness here in these verse in this quote. Anomia is that word that means iniquities. That is lawlessness, not in conformity to the law. It's used mostly in the Old Testament as a reference to revolt. Or rebellion. Saul, King Saul, was a rebellious man. He did not walk after God's heart. He rebelled against God. Harmatea, if I'm pronouncing these words right, I'm happy, means to miss the mark. This is a person who refuses, get this, who refuses, he has the ability to, he has the knowledge to, he refuses to bring his conduct up to standards set by God, perhaps by substituting a standard of his own ingenuity. The plural, or the, the next form of harmatia is a, or this form, the first form, is representing all of the collective sins that men commit, that a man commits. This is not in reference to accidentally missing the mark out of ignorance. Rather, this is the person who aims and makes his mark differently than that which God set up. Harmatea is used a second time in a singular con connotation representing a sinful mindset. Now let's look at the words for forgiveness. Likewise, there are three words. Apima forgiven 
means to dismiss, to send away, to forgive, like a cloud is blown away, or like the scapegoat under the old system was sent into the wilderness outside of the camp, representing sins being taken away. Psalm 103, verse 12, tells us, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. What a wonderful blessing. Micah 7, verse 19, tells us, He will again have compassion on us. He will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The second word for forgiveness is epicolapto, means covered, to cover over. This effectively covers our sin, the sin that is so abominable to God's sight that he turned his back on his only begotten son when Jesus took his, our sins on him. God covers over our sins with the blood of Jesus Christ. The third and final word of forgiveness is logozima. Again, I'm sure I'm butchering these Greek words, which means to count or to reckon or to regard. By never imputing sins, God then imputes righteousness. Think about this. Our sins, as, oft, as awful as they are, cause God to turn away from his only begotten son. But because of his only begotten son, our Savior, he is willing to cover them up so that he doesn't see them. And then he is willing to impute righteousness to us. This adds up to the concept that Paul is stressing, apart from works. That simply means that without any perfect obedience to any law, a law once broken can only declare men guilty. That's all that the law does. Thus the man who credits, whom God credits righteousness has not been perfectly righteous. Instead, he is a man who has been forgiven. Verse 9 and 10. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only? Or upon the uncircumcised also. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Paul answers the hypothetical question. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. When God called Abram from Ur of the Chaldees and told him of the promised land, he outlined this covenant to him. He clearly straight illustrated that once more that he was taking the initiative. God was taking the initiative and moving graciously in the affairs of man. Through this man, he intended to move into the affairs of a family, which by his description was going to be large and far-reaching. The Jewish people have. They've traced their roots to Abraham with great pride. But if we're honest... So have the Arabs, other tribes of people in the Middle East. The former through Isaac, the latter through Ishmael. But when Paul spoke, speaks of Abraham as the father of us all, the family of which Abraham is the father of is neither Jewish nor Arab, Jewish or Gentile, but something that transcends both. 
and incorporates us all, incorporates far more. It's the family of all who believe, the family of faith. We are his true children, though we are not of his bloodline. The somewhat tedious nature of some of this has caused a lot of people to overlook it. And in doing so, they've overlooked some great doctrine that is taught throughout the word of God. Continuing to use Abraham as an illustration of God's dealings with man, the apostle turns to the chronology of events in this part of the uh, divine and human drama. When God made his promise to Abraham, it had been believed with the result that justification by faith was experienced by Abraham. Fourteen years later, the Lord introduced the concept of circumcision. Fourteen years after God declared Abraham just, God introduced circumcision. Paul's inescapable conclusion is that Abraham was declared justified 14 years before he was circumcised. He was obviously not justified because he was circumcised. Therefore, God is not interested in a man's circumcision, but whether or not he is a man of faith. I want you to use the word circumcision and transpose that law-keeping or meritorious works. There are, in the divine way of looking at things, uncircumcised believers and circumcised unbelievers. The former is justified, the latter is not. In a similar passage in Galatians, Paul states that the law was given to Moses 430 years after Abraham had been justified by faith. And therefore, neither Abraham nor anyone else would ever be justified by keeping the law, but only by believing unto righteousness. Paul says it very bluntly and very clearly. The promise was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. He adds that law brings about wrath. We understand that law brings about wrath because law declares man guilty. I think a word about circumcision would be beneficial right here, and I'll try to hurry. Keep in mind, though, that though we're not bothered today about the religious importance of circumcision, we today in the Lord's church are often very bothered about law-keeping. Let's look a little closer at verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. We learn from Paul's pen that circumcision was a sign. Signs were often given to mark the fulfillment of a covenant. God had set the people of Israel apart. All the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, were a part of this group on the condition that they practiced this circumcision as it was prescribed to Abraham and made law code by Moses. The sign of circumcision demonstrated evidence of divine involvement, a reminder of a decisive event, and a mark of belonging to a particular group. 
we can easily transpose law keeping in place of circumcision. In the Grecian culture that Paul lived and wrote in, uh, bodily mutilation was frowned upon and mocked. Circumcision is not called a sign in the New Testament until Paul does right here. It was a mark for belonging to Israel or being a part of the Jewish nation. A sign was a rite by which baby boys became a part of the covenant of people of God. We also see in this verse that circumcision was a seal. Seals were placed on documents like a ring, uh, king's ring seal was placed on a document to attest their genuineness or their ownership. Much like by faith, or no, much like a brand on cattle or um, our unique signature or perhaps our pin code or passcode to our bank account, Abraham's seal attested the righteousness that he received by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Circumcision did not make Abraham righteous. Circumcision was the badge of faith commitment by Abraham to God. We do not practice circumcision religiously today, but there is law that we keep. Correct worship, modest dress, clean living, doing good to our fellow man. These are not saving works. But these, like circumcision, demonstrate our faith, commitment to God. Without circumcision, Abraham would have been the father of the Gentiles only. He is called father in that he is the head of the faith clan. Not only of the Jews, not only of the Gentiles, but of all who are faithful. He was first through whom God showed how men are to be saved. In other words, Abraham was declared righteous because of his faith, get this, in the promised son with a small s. So today, all men are declared righteous because of their faith in the promised son, capital S, not Isaac or Ishmael. They serve as the foreshadow of the true Jesus Christ. God's gracious intentions to save the world precede his creation of Israel. After Abraham was made the father of believing Gentiles, he was circumcised so that he might become the first of a circumcised people. So Abraham became the father of both classes. Paul actually turns the boast of the Jews upside down. It's not the Gentiles who have to come to the Jews for circumcision, for salvation, but the Jews who have come to the simple Gentile childlike faith that Abraham had long before he was circumcised. Faith saves, not circumcision. Faith saves, not law keeping. Circumcision secured nationality, not salvation. Faith that saves should not be viewed as faith alone. I have to make this very clear this morning. Faith that saves should not be viewed as faith alone. Though it could be said to be primary in importance, and first in order. It is not without repentance, confession, and baptism. And this our contemporary dispensation. One may well wonder how all of this applies to us today. 
It's a good question. And worthy of us spending a few moments as we draw the lesson to a close to dig in. How does the law of justification outside of the law apply to New Testament Christians? Some who hear some of the things that I'm about to say may not like it. But I hope the answer will be clear and understandable. We will, like Paul, use a couple of illustrations from the scripture to prove our point. Too often in our circles today, we want an individual to clean up their life before they come to Jesus for salvation. We seem to think that a person can only become a mem valid member of the Lord's church after he or she is free from all manner of evil. This is not what happened in Abraham's life. Before the law of circumcision was even in effect, Abraham was justified. The Jew of Paul's day had gotten the ox before the cart. They wanted to see a stranger, a, a, a Gentile, circumcised before he became a Christian. Now note, this was not conversion to Judaism. He would have had to become circumcised before he became a Jew, even a proselyte at the gate. This would have been conversion to Christianity. Paul's argument is that Abraham, whom they all counted as father, was an example of righteousness. Did not even know of circumcision before he was justified. In fact, it was at least 14 years before Abraham was circumcised that he was called justified by God. How does that play out in our life today? Let's use another example from Scripture that draws closer to the application. That of Cornelius found in Acts chapter 10 and 11. We're familiar with the story already. After the exchange with the angel, Cornelius in obedience to God's command that the messenger, the angel, gave to him, sent to Joppa for Peter to come and tell him words whereby he must be saved. And we've learned already in Acts chapter 10 that Cornelius is a good man, a godly man, a man who prays daily, a man who gives alms to the people, a man who has such a great positive religious influence that his whole house followed him in his religion. As Peter was speaking words whereby they may be saved, explaining to them about Jesus, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes that group just like he did on the day of Pentecost. This is sometimes referred to as the Gentile Pentecost or the second Pentecost. But at what point was Cornelius added to the church? At what point was Cornelius made justified? Not with the vision of the angel or hearing the words of Peter or at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but it was at the point of his immersion in water for salvation. The same is for us today. Baptism is not equal to circumcision. Baptism is not equal to law keeping. Baptism is equal to, in Abraham's life, leaving the Ur of the Chaldees. Here's the rub. Most people in the Lord's church today consider it wrong for a Christian to be in the military. The reasoning is that soldiers or sailors are sometimes forced to take the life of another human being. This is murder, and murder is wrong. We agree with that pretty much across the board. So the positive action for a new convert to take is to get out. The problem is we have no record of Cornelius doing that. 
I would argue that he probably did. But one of his rank in the Roman army likely had a more difficult time leaving service than our service members do today. That likely did not happen overnight. He likely did not figure that out overnight. We have no record of Cornelius ever being taught that this was wrong. If, I think it's highly likely, but if he came to that conclusion, it was probably a long while later. I realize I'm reading a lot into the story of Cornelius here. This is how it applies in our lives today. What if he died before he made that conclusion? Let me make it more personal. What if he died before he came to the same conclusion as me? Would he be justified? I would argue and argue vehemently, absolutely. Because he had already done in faith of the promised son all that was commanded of him. He had walked in all of the light that was available to him. Much like Abraham when he left the Ur of the Chaldees, he was justified by faith in the promised son, which was predicated upon his obedience. But still before circumcision. Cornelius was justified because of his faith in the promised son, predicated upon his obedience, but still while a centurion in the Roman army. So when people in the world come today wanting to learn about grace, wanting to learn about forgiveness, who are we to demand that they clean up their life before we teach them the gospel? Who are we to demand that they straighten up before we baptize them and count them as brother and sister? I don't see that in the scripture. I don't see that pattern in the scripture at all. But this does not leave us room to be lazy and shiftless in our study of the Word of God. We must be ever learning and ever growing, just like Abraham was. We must be ever submissive to God's law, just like Abraham was, just like Cornelius probably was. The alien sinner today, addicted to drugs, may be baptized, added to the church, and justified because of his faith in the promised son. Because it's predicated on his obedience by obeying the gospel plan of salvation. We cannot demand people rise to our standard before they're treated as brother and sister. We cannot deny fellowship to someone who is trying their best and is obedient to the light that they have while they're struggling to crucify the old man in some manner. Next verse, and we'll conclude our lesson very quickly. The father of circumcision, to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Now, obviously, Paul was not talking about keeping the law of Moses. He's talking about the faith that Abraham had while still uncircumcised. We're talking about walking by faith. 
we're talking about growing in grace, adding to our faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, and so forth. All of Abraham's descendants were circumcised. Nationally, biologically, he was the father of them all. But it was only to such of them that had his faith. Let's make that present tense. It is only to such of them that have his faith that he is their spiritual father. Here in verse 12, follow is a military term meaning to march and file. A continual following, a walking in harmony with Abraham's example. Keep in mind, remember that Abraham sometimes stumbled. He didn't quit following. This pattern of behavior continued for many years after he was declared to be righteous. We today become Abraham's son, Abraham's daughter, by faith. Because we follow his example of a lifestyle of faithfulness. We may stumble. We may mess up. We may have to back up. It may come to the point that we have to make a confession before the church. We're still Abraham's son or daughter by faith. Because we trust in the promised son. And it is our intention to be obedient to Jesus Christ. To God the Father. If you're here this morning and you have not yet obeyed the gospel,